Well, let me tell you about my day yesterday. I had maybe the most exciting Saturday of anybody in the room. Now, with all of the football games on, with all of the college sports happening, and yes, I'm wearing maroon in morning for my Aggies this morning, but my guess is uh, you didn't have the day like I did yesterday. So four, six, count them, one, two, three, four, five, six hours yesterday, I got to work on seating charts for my wedding that is happening in two weeks. Yes, six hours on seating charts. So if you haven't done seating charts in a while, let me tell you how this process works, because I've been learning quickly. You take your dining room table, and you move everything off it, and then you put the table numbers out, and then you put all of the names of your guests, and then you start to kind of do like this like shuffling around and putting people next to table numbers and then grouping people together based on relationships to one another. And then once you have it done, you step back and you look at it and you go, oh, no, 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 this won't work. And then you've got to move all of the names around because this person used to work with this person and they can't sit at the table anymore. And then this person had a, you know, a conflict with this other person. And then, well, these two people are family, but they actually don't like each other, so they can't go at this table. And you start reshuffling everything that you've done to make sure that everybody is at the perfect table. Now, I'm lucky and fortunate enough that my fiancé was a wedding and event planner for a decade. So, if you did not know, there is a right way to do seating charts. And I got to hear the whole philosophy of how you arrange seating charts. And she's not here this morning to defend herself, so let me tell you all about it. But I quickly learned that In the midst of all of the shuffling around, in the midst of all of kind of the navigating and the rethinking and the standing there staring at it, hoping magically something different will happen with all of the names on the table, I'm like, just put them together. It doesn't matter. Like, how long does dinner really last? Like, 30 minutes. Just, it's fine. There's like eight people, 10 people at a table. If they don't like somebody across the table, they'll talk. That doesn't work because it's about care and concern for your guests, so I'm told. But... I say this in jest, but really there was this essence of hospitality that was attempting to kind of weave its way through all of our work, trying to cultivate and curate this meaningful experience for our guests. Now, I was of the impression like, no, let's just entertain them. We'll do some fun stuff. The music will be good. The food will be good. It won't really matter. And my fiance, she's like, no. She said, it matters where they sit. Because their experience matters. And she took this approach of hospitality because the way that you interact with people, the way that you think through all of the details of your relationships to people and how you care for them says something about who they are to you and how you feel about them. And so I'm starting to learn a little bit about the right and the wrong way to do hospitality. I don't know if there are some of you here who have that same gift of hospitality. You know how to look at a table and move things around and it just works, or you know how to invite your guests into a room. Maybe you're married to somebody who has that gift, or maybe you're like me and you've been told in no uncertain terms that you clearly don't have that gift and that you should spend more time working on that gift. Yeah, I see some nods and elbows. Yeah. Well, apparently there are right ways and wrong ways to engage in hospitality. And really, our understanding of hospitality today has evolved a lot since kind of the dawn of civilization. Last week, we started a series that unpacked this idea about kind of who we're called to be as people, as the people of God, as followers 
of Jesus, and it's this idea that we are blessed to be a blessing, that there is a role, that there's a calling, that there's a purpose to our lives that doesn't just end with our lives. It's bigger than that. We're supposed to leverage our lives in service to others. And it's through that that God works. It's through us, through the ways that we bless other people, that God blesses the whole world. And so what we talked about last week was kind of in this world of tribalism, when you had all of these kind of different small pockets of people, there was this new thing that God decided to do in the world with this new tribe, with this new family, that wasn't concerned any longer with self-preservation, with, wasn't concerned any longer with acquiring for themselves, but was allowing themselves to be leveraged by God for something greater, something more impactful. Well, one of the dynamics that existed in that time period because of kind of the ways that these groups of people would bump into conflict with each other was you kind of had this ancient understanding of hospitality. And this ancient understanding of hospitality, while on the surface it seemed kind and generous, kind of behind the scenes it was more about kind of protection and group preservation. Because you could imagine, you know, roaming groups of people when they come in contact with somebody you were never really sure if somebody was a threat or not did they pose danger to you and your tribe and so you had to make sure that you provided for them in such a way that you didn't risk kind of you know upsetting somebody you know making some neighboring tribe disgruntled because of your lack of kindness or your treatment to them you know it's like that idea that you know what is it like tall fences make great neighbors is that, is that same idea? It's like how you interact with the people around you impacts y'all's relationships and can make your life, you know, pleasant or very unpleasant. And so there was this concept of like, okay, when someone who you don't know enters into your vicinity, your sphere of influence and control, you were supposed to, to greet them, to welcome them, to invite them in, to give them food and to drink, uh, a basin of water to wash their feet. There were kind of some standards and expectations that you would go through to ensure that they didn't leave and come back with the rest of their tribe and wipe your tribe out. This was kind of this base understanding of what hospitality was going to look like. But then with this new tribe, God pulls Abraham and his family out and says, you're going to do something new and I'm going to work in you in a different way. Your tribe's not going to exist for its own sake but for the, for the opportunity for me to bless the entire world through it. And so last week we looked at this first story that God kind of gives Abraham and his family this calling. Today I want to look at another story in Abraham's life because in the same way that God elevates Abraham's understanding of what it means to be a tribe, he elevates, Abraham elevates our understanding of what biblical hospitality looks like. It's not just to ensure that your guests have a seat that you can get through the event without any kind of disruption or any fighting that's happening because of long-standing relational dynamics. But there's a way in which we use our hospitality that we can actually bless people. So let me jump in. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open them. If you have your phone, you want to pull out your Bible app, you can do it as well. And if not, then I'll just put it on the screen and we can work through it together. So here we are in Genesis chapter 18. Now, the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Now, what we need to understand a little bit about what has just happened in this story right before this moment, uh, 
God has entered into a covenant with Abraham and all of his descendants. I will be your God. You will be my people. I'll bless all the nations through you. As a sign of that covenant, God asked Abraham to uh, undergo a surgery. We'll just put it that way. He asked Abraham to undergo a bit of a surgery, uh, biblical kind of understanding that there was like this circumcision that was a sign of a covenant between God and Abraham. So there Abraham is maybe two months off of this surgery. By the way, Abraham is 99 years old. You know, I've heard that as you age, your body doesn't heal quite the same way. So he's sitting there in his tent in the heat of the day, and then this is what happens next. He looks up, and he saw three men standing there. Now, later in kind of this chapter, what we learn is that two of these men are angels, and the third one is God. Abraham doesn't have this insight and this information, but he looks up. He sees these men, and they're kind of approaching from a distance. Well, what happens next is he sees them, and he gets up, and he runs from his tent to meet them, and he bows down to the ground. Now, this seems like a, just kind of a normal story so far, but what we need to understand about this is, like, this would have been extremely shameful and disgraceful for an elderly man to get up and to run. This isn't what happened. That would be undignified. And so what we see Abraham do in this moment is he engages in a bit of embarrassment for himself, maybe puts himself in a bit of pain to get up and to go and to greet these men. So he gets up, he goes, greets them, runs, bows down. And then he says, my Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. And then he kind of begins to engage in this normal script that if you were kind of listening to the story at that time period, you would understand it's kind of baseline expectation hospitality. Here's what he says. Let a little water be brought to wash your feet. Rest yourself under the tree. And he goes on, he says, let me bring a little bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. Now, this is exactly what these men would have expected. This was customary hospitality. Let me go get a little bit of water. Let me bring a little bit of bread. You can rest your feet a little bit, clean up, have a bite, and then you'll be on your way. I don't mean you any harm. I don't want to do anything to upset you so that your tribe starts a conflict with my tribe. Just minimal expectations. But then Abraham does something different. Something that would have been strange and unusual for this time period. It would have been outside of what was customary, and it would have kind of broken the tradition of hospitality at that time period. But it gets to the heart of what I think God is trying to do through Abraham to the rest of the world. And I think it starts to kind of form how we can understand what hospitality should look like in our lives today. He says, Abraham runs back to the tent, and he says to Sarah, and he says, quick, make ready three measures of choice flour, knead it, and make cakes. Now, this word in Hebrew, measure, is seah. Y'all say this with me. Seah. Good. One more time. One, two, three. Seah. Three measures of flour. Now, if you've ever made bread before, you don't need a lot of ingredients. You just need some water, flour, a little bit of yeast, and some salt. Now, if you like to trick it up, you could add some other things to it. But at its essence, that's all you need. And depending on kind of the type of bread that you're making, the size of the bread that you're making, you might need 
you know, what, a couple of cups of flour to, to, make, this, to make this bread? Three seos, three measures of flour, our best guess and estimate is it actually turns into about 75 pounds of flour. That's right, 75 pounds of flour. That would be enough for over 100 loaves of bread. Think about how many peanut butter and jelly sandwiches you could make with over 100 loaves of bread for three men. This is more bread than these three men could have been able to eat in a you know, four-month time period. But this is what Abraham does. He runs back, and it's not just any kind of flour. It's the choice flour. It's the Wagyu in the back of the freezer that you've been saving for your anniversary. I mean, this is like we're pulling out the good stuff. He says, let's get three measures. And you can imagine what Sarah's thinking in this moment. It's like, I didn't know that they were going to have company, and you didn't tell me, and we don't have anything ready. I don't even know how long it would have taken to make 75 pounds of flour into bread. But this is what Abraham does. And not just that, not just 75 pounds of flour. But then he runs to the herd and he takes a calf, tender and good. So he's going for the top steak. He's like, let's get something really nice for these guys. This isn't just what we have laying around. This isn't just what's available. But there's like effort and consideration put into. There's like an extravagance and a generosity into Abraham's response to these men. Let's go get it. The servant starts to chop it up, sear it up, do whatever he does, however they cooked steak back then. And then he goes and he gets curds and milk. Because isn't that what you want with bread and, and, and a calf is curds and milk? So I guess maybe it's like a quattro leches cake or something. I don't know how, how they made stuff back then. But they got curds and milk and the calf that he prepared. And he brings all of this to them. And he sets it before him. And he stands there under the tree while they ate. 75 pounds of flour. Now, it's like, okay, that's fine, Stephen. I don't really get the point. That seems a little like a strange story. But then, a couple thousand years later, Jesus shows up, and he's gathered his disciples around him. And he's beginning to teach them. He's trying to help them understand and remind them who God has called God's people to be. He's starting to try to impart, to explain what their purpose is, what their goal is. It's not just about this personal relationship with them and God. It's not just making sure that they're right with God. It's far bigger than that. Jesus just reiterates the original calling that God gave to Abraham. He says, there's a role here. He says that you're the light of the world. There's a purpose that you have. People will look to you, they'll see your good deeds, and they will glorify your Father in heaven. He's trying to help them understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to live in such a way that your life actually impacts other people for good. And the ways that it impacts people for good then allow them to come into relationship with God. And then he begins to start to paint word pictures, these ideas to help them understand that The ways that God is calling us to participate with him often fall outside of the traditional norms of kind of organized religion. It's not about attendance and all of the rituals and the rules that you follow, but it's the ways that you love and serve each other. 
and begins to paint these word pictures. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. And the kingdom of heaven is just that space and place in which people live in accordance to God's intent and purpose, God's rule. And then he paints this other, this kind of final word picture in Matthew 13. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with three measures of wheat flour. Wheat flour is the choice, the finest flour. Until the whole batch was leavened. Jesus says there's something that you have to know about what it means to be a follower. This is the essence of what it means to live as a person of God. Is to live with this extravagant, generous hospitality. Way more than they need. Way more than they deserve. Abundance upon abundance upon abundance. 75 pounds of flour. This is what Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like. Does our hospitality match that? Does the way that we engage with the people around us, does it match this standard? I know mine doesn't. When people come to my door, I don't invite them in and serve them the best food that I have in the fridge. That's not what it looks like for me. No, what I do is I pick up my phone and I open the Ring app and I see who they are. And then I decide that I'm probably not going to answer the door. Like, that's my response when, people, when strangers show up at my house. I don't know what yours is, but they don't come inside. Most of the time, I just push the talk button and I talk to them through the, the technology. I don't, why? I don't know. There's, they could be dangerous. I don't know. We have such a skewed understanding of what it means to be in relationship with one another. We have forgotten this principle of hospitality. I think that when we look at Abraham's example, there's a couple of things that I notice, things that he did that I think we should repeat. The first thing that Abraham does is he looks up. He looks up and he sees these three men. I don't know about you, but the way that I live my life most of the time, I'm not looking up. I am focused on what I've got going on. I'm busy. We're all busy, right? And unless I've got it scheduled on my calendar, I don't usually have time for kind of interruptions to be pulled off track for an extended conversation with somebody that I didn't plan on. Much less strangers at my door. But it's not just about who shows up to your house. But think about the ways in which we live our lives, the ways that we go through our day-to-day. We go from one thing to the next, from one meeting to the next, from one activity to the next, from one class to the next, whatever it is. And how often do we look up? How often are we paying attention to the people who are outsiders, who are unaffiliated with the group that we're a part of, who don't seem to have a place? A couple of weeks ago, I went to uh, parent orientation at Ursuline, and you could see all of the adults revert back to like their middle school and high school selves because we all gathered in the cafeteria. It was like you walked in and everybody just like started to like sweat and get nervous because it's like, well, where do I sit and who do I talk to and how do I, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was just me, but it seemed like everybody was having this shared collective experience because we're so safe in our comfort zones. We're so safe in our groups. 
But I think what Abraham's example and Jesus' reminder of what it looks like to participate in the kingdom of God teaches us is, is we have a responsibility to those around us. We have a responsibility to people who don't look like us, who don't sound like us, who don't vote like us, who don't live where we live. We have a responsibility to those people, not because of the ways that it benefits us, but because of the ways that we've been called to leverage our lives for their sake, the ways that we have been blessed to be a blessing. Next thing I see in Abraham's example about what it means to live out this kind of biblical hospitality in our own life is not only did he look up, but then he got up and ran. So he looks up, he starts to take inventory of the people around him that maybe he would have missed. But then he gets up, puts himself potentially in a harmful place, running after a surgery. He puts himself in a shameful place. He risks embarrassment. He risks ridicule. He breaks conventional norms. How often are we willing to inconvenience ourselves to the point of like social critique to be hospitable towards others? It's rare that I'm willing to put myself into that place. My guess is, is it similar for you? Like, what does it look like to go out of your way to care for somebody? To go out of your way to be generous? To go out of your way to let them know that you see them? I mean, I, I do the same, I play the same game that y'all do when we pull up to the stoplight and there's somebody on the side asking for money. Like, oh, what's on my phone? How do I, oh, the radio needs adjusting. I have all of these things that immediately come to my attention so I don't have to make eye contact because I don't know what to do. What if it simply just meant rolling down the window and saying, hey, tell me your name. Let's get some skin-on-skin contact because that makes us all really uncomfortable. Will you shake my hand? Hi, what's your name? Hi, I'm Stephen. It's nice to meet you. I don't have any money today, or maybe you do, whatever the situation is. I just wanted to say hi. God loves you. The person that you would be driving with would be like, what are you doing? What are you, stop, stop, stop it. Because we're so confined to our bubbles. We're so confined to our safety and our security of the people and the environments that look like us. Abraham, he looks up, and then he gets up, and he runs towards them. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. He goes to them. That's why this Surf Sunday thing is such, such an important part, kind of our ethos and our identity as a church. It's not just enough to talk about it. Like, we want to do it. We want to work alongside people. We want to serve alongside them. We want to let others know that we love them, that we care for them, that we're for them. And it's not just enough to say, hey, you know, in three weeks, we've got an availability if y'all wanted to come and just be with us. No, that's why we get up and we go and we're closing the doors of this church so that we can go to them because we want to model biblical hospitality. We want to be like Abraham. We want to look up, see people in need. We want to get up and we want to go, even when it makes us uncomfortable even when it feels uncertain. And then the last thing what we see in Abraham's life is he is unbelievably generous. 
like you could argue stupidly generous. Like that's not wise, Abraham. Y'all need that for a college fund, generous. I know in my life that's, it is very measured. I am, I would like to be generous to a point, but that point is rarely like self-harm, self-injury, self-need. Like whatever the line is, like, ooh, that's going to hurt. I'm right on the other side of that line. But I think that what Abraham's example teaches us is God has blessed us not so we can look back and say, wow, look what we got to distribute, to share, to give, to surprise people. There's this account I follow on Instagram, and uh, his name is, is Jimmy Darts. And I don't know if any of you follow Jimmy Darts, but uh, what Jimmy Darts does is, I don't know who he is, or, but he's probably in his 30s, so this guy, and he shows up to random people on the streets, and he asks them for a favor. And he sees who would respond in kindness. And then he ends up like always being like, well, actually, I didn't need that. And I just wanted to bless you. And he'll pull out like $5,000 and give it to him. Or he'll be like, hey, have you ever been to an amusement park? Would you like to go with me? And then he'll take them to an amusement park. And then afterwards, he'll, he'll put them up in a hotel and then put their, like create like a Patreon account so that people can begin to care for and to bless this individual. And I, I mention it because what touches me most is less his actions, which are unbelievably generous. But it's the shock that spreads across people's faces when they're the recipients of these actions. We have become so used to ignoring people in need that when someone is extravagantly, abundantly, generously blessed, it's like they remember that they're human again. You see it. They're like, not only did you see me, not only did you approach me, but like you, like I matter. I think that that's one of the things that Abraham understood that God wants us to get, that Jesus tried to remind us of, is that there's a whole family of people that God's wanting to come back home. That God wants them to know that God loves them. People who feel forgotten and left out, mistreated, ignored, for whatever reason. And God's waiting on us to do it. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who took some yeast and she mixed it in with three measures, 75 pounds of flour, until the whole batch was leavened. What would it look like for us to begin to rethink the ways that we're leaning into to biblical hospitality? What would it look like if just this group here, could you imagine if just us, forget everybody else, if just us started to do this, whether it's in your high school or whether it's at your company or your parent group, or your extracurricular activity? Could you imagine if just us started to begin to look for people who might be in need? And it doesn't just have to be financial. It can be with your time, with your presence, with eye contact. 
You can be generous with your words. There's so many ways that we have more than we need that God is wanting us to share and to give to others. Could you imagine if just we started to get this right, to look up, to see the people, to go towards them at risk to ourselves and to be unbelievably generous? To sit next to somebody in a cafeteria who nobody ever talks to. To come alongside a coworker who's struggling to figure out their place. To acknowledging people who we would just much rather drive by. What would it look like if we started to get this right? If we could start to put this into practice? I think Jesus tells us start to look like the kingdom of heaven where people are included where people are cared for where people are provided for and where they're certain that God loves them too let me pray for our time and then we'll bring the band out to lead us in one last song gracious God help us to rethink what it means to be hospitable Help us to rethink the ways that we can use our lives to bless others. God, challenge us to move past our comfort zone and into the place where real life begins. God, help us to love and to serve others the way that you have loved and served us. This is our prayer. It's in your name we pray. Amen.